0: Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holliday and I'm spilling the tea on history. The Four Tudor Queens One Jane Grey The Tudor era is all about the women. Once you get past Henry VIII and his six wives, three successive queens got a chance to warm the throne of England. But being a queen in a man's world wasn't easy. Unfortunately, these reigning women were pitched against each other in deadly struggles for power. In these four episodes, we'll look at the lives of the four queens of Tudor Britain Jane Grey, Mary I, Elizabeth I, and Mary Queen of Scots, and examine their brief, bloody, brilliant, and bumbling reigns. And so, without further ado, Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen of England. Henry VIII's only son, Edward VI, died tragically young. On his deathbed, he signed a new will, surpassing his rightful heir, his Catholic sister, Mary, and making his cousin, 16-year-old Protestant, Lady Jane Grey, the new queen. The reluctant teenager sat on the throne for only nine days before the people rallied behind Princess Mary. Once she claimed her birthright, Queen Bloody Mary had her cousin beheaded in the Tower of London. Jane Grey may have been born at Bradgate Park in October 1537 or in London between May 1536 and February 1537. The births of sons were recorded in great detail, while daughters were considered far less important but Jane was born into a royal family, which had plenty of female children, but was notoriously short on male heirs. She was the eldest daughter of the eldest daughter of King Henry VIII's younger sister, Mary. Her grandmother, a famous beauty, had been briefly wed to King Louis XII of France. After his death, she eloped with an Englishman, Charles Brandon. The king was furious as he had wanted to marry her off to another old man, but he loved his sister, so decided not to have Charles beheaded. Instead, he levied a hefty fine, which impoverished the newlyweds. They were poor, but happy, and most importantly for our story, English. The Brandons had four children, two sons and two daughters. Their firstborn son died in infancy but their second, Henry Brandon, had a slim but real possibility of becoming king. He was born when his uncle Henry VIII had only one living legitimate child, Princess Mary, and Queen Catherine of Aragon, at 38, was unlikely to bear any more children. Henry could not comprehend handing his throne to a daughter, and as he had no sons, the next in the line of succession were the descendants of his only living siblings, his two sisters. His elder sister Margaret had married King James IV of Scotland, but Henry was at war with the Scots, so he wrote Margaret's offspring out of his will. But as the Brandon children were English, the King favored them. During his lifetime, Henry Brandon was the only person in the line of succession who was both male and English, but alas, he died at the age of 10. This left only his two sisters, Frances and Eleanor. They grew up close to their cousin, Princess Mary, and visited the royal court often, though they were the poor relations. Francis in particular reveled in education and became deeply ambitious to improve her station. Henry VIII divorced his first wife and declared his daughter, Princess Mary, illegitimate. He then married Anne Boleyn, but when she produced only a daughter, Elizabeth, the king had Anne beheaded and Elizabeth declared illegitimate as well. At this point, there was a real chance that if the king didn't manage to have a son, the crown could end up on Francis's head. At 16, she married equally ambitious Henry Gray. Their first child was a son, but he died shortly after birth. She then had three healthy daughters, Jane, Catherine, and Mary. Within a year of Jane's birth, Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour, finally gave birth to the long-awaited male heir, Edward. The baby prince was healthy and was expected to inherit the throne, thus dashing any chances Francis had at becoming queen. Nonetheless, Frances had great ambitions for her daughters, especially the eldest, Jane. Most Tudor parents were extremely strict, but Frances was on another level. She expected perfection and was demanding and domineering. Jane's meekness, quiet nature, and unassuming manner irritated her mother, who sought to harden her with beatings and punishment. Jane did receive an outstanding humanist education her parents hired the future Bishop of London to educate her in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and Italian. This investment would typically have been spent on a son if the family had any, Anne Jane was far more lettered than most noble girls of her time. She took to academics with joy and much preferred spending the day in the library reading Plato than going outside to ride or hunt. The Grey family had taken it to Protestantism with fervor, and young Jane corresponded with some of the great religious reformers of the time. Francis became friends with the king's sixth and final wife, Catherine Parr, also a devout Protestant and a highly educated woman. She secured 13-year-old Jane a position at court as a maid of honor to the queen. Jane admired Catherine and grew very close to her, seeing her as a second, kinder mother. When Henry VIII died in 1547, his will left the throne to his nine-year-old son, Edward VI. Next in the succession, he reinstated his two daughters, Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth, though they were still legally illegitimate. Henry officially struck the Scottish line of his sister Margaret out completely, but provided that if his children didn't have offspring, then the crown would pass to the descendants of his younger sister, Mary. Catherine Parr married Thomas Seymour and Jane Grey moved with her to Sudley Castle. There she spent time with her cousin, Princess Elizabeth, who was also under the care of the Dowager Queen. Jane stayed by Catherine's side through her pregnancy, childbirth, and death from childbed fever. Jane was the chief mourner at her surrogate mother's funeral. Afterward, Thomas Seymour kept Jane at his home, as he thought he might be able to use the teenager to his advantage. He was the brother of the late queen, Jane Seymour and was therefore the maternal uncle of the young King Edward VI. His older brother, Edward Seymour had been named regent, and the two uncles were in a tug of war over the affections of the child monarch. Thomas plotted a marriage between Edward and Jane. He wanted to make the girl over whom he had so much influence, queen. Thomas attempted to kidnap King Edward, but he was seized in the royal apartments, arrested, and beheaded. Edward Seymour's position as regent was not to last. John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, claimed the regency in a coup and had Seymour beheaded. Northumberland was one of the dukes who had enriched himself by taking land from the church and the people during Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries. When a group of peasants rose up in protest, Northumberland defeated and brutally executed the ringleaders. The people had not forgotten Kit's rebellion, and Northumberland was deeply hated. By this time, King Edward was beginning to assert his own authority. He was staunchly Protestant and overhauled the way common people worshipped. He outlawed candles, images, rosaries, and the Latin Mass, and he imprisoned anyone who continued Catholic practices. The most defiant of all was his own heir, his elder sister, Princess Mary. Edward was furious with her, and was determined that she should never have the throne. And she never would have if Edward married and had a son of his own. But in February 1553, the 15-year-old king fell suddenly ill with consumption, what we now call tuberculosis. The finest doctors in the land believed there was no way to save the king's life. Princess Mary was closer to the throne than ever before. For Edward, a return to Catholicism spelled the spiritual ruin of the nation. And for his counselors, who had long ago seized church land, it spelled financial ruin. So Northumberland encouraged the ailing king to sign a new device for the succession. The act passed over Princess Mary, on the grounds that she had been declared illegitimate. For the same reason, Princess Elizabeth, though Protestant, would also have to be passed over. So that meant the throne must go to his cousin Francis and her three daughters, Jane, Catherine, and Mary. But Edward, like his father, couldn't possibly comprehend a woman inheriting the throne so instead he bequeathed the crown to Francis's heir's male, who didn't yet exist. The Grey daughters were hastily married off in the hopes that one of them would bear a son before the King's death. Twelve-year-old Catherine was wed to the son of the Earl of Pembroke. Mary, only eight, was betrothed to the middle-aged and disfigured Baron of Wilton. The greatest prize, 16-year-old Jane, was married to Northumberland's own son, 18-year-old Guilford Dudley. When first informed of her betrothal, Jane refused, but her father struck her several times, making it clear that she had no choice in the matter. In May, Jane and Dudley were wed in a ceremony fit for a king and queen king edward was too ill to attend but he issued a royal warrant providing fine clothes for the wedding party jousts masks and the attendance of foreign ambassadors the king's health continued to fade fast and it became clear that there would not be time for jane to become pregnant and deliver a bouncing baby boy edward would have no choice but to settle for a woman inheriting his throne on his deathbed, he changed the device of the succession. At Northumberland's request, he passed over Francis and changed the wording of who would get the crown from the Lady Jane's heirs' male to the Lady Jane and her heirs' male. And with that stroke of the pen, he changed his cousin's fate. Edward died on the 6th of July, 1553, age 15. Northumberland managed to keep the new succession plan and the King's death a secret. He invited Princess Mary to court, where he intended to arrest her, but someone tipped her off and instead she fled to Norfolk, where she was confident of support. Northumberland sent ships to the Norfolk coast to prevent her escape or the arrival of reinforcements from her many allies on the continent. He also called troops loyal to him to secure the Tower of London, the fortress which was at the center of power in England. Whoever held the tower held the throne. On July 9th, Jane Grey was brought to Northumberland's mansion, and informed that she was now queen. She burst into tears and refused the position, protesting that Princess Mary was the rightful heir. But when her parents arrived to put the pressure on her, she reluctantly accepted her new title. Northumberland threw a grand banquet to celebrate the new queen. On July 10th, Jane was escorted by Barge to the Tower of London, where English monarchs customarily resided from the time of their ascension until their coronation. Edward's death was announced to the public, and Jane was declared Queen of England, France, and Ireland, to murmurings of discontent. She was only the second Queen Regnant in English history the first having been Matilda, whose reign from 1141 to 1148 caused civil war and remains disputed. Jane's royal procession into the Tower was full of pomp and ceremony, but two details highlighted how wrong this event appeared to those who witnessed it. Her mother, Frances, whose claim to the throne should have come first, carried her daughter's train and her new husband, Guilford, placed himself at the head of the procession, even before his wife. It was clear that Northumberland intended to make his son the new king. Many saw plainly his attempts to control the country through his daughter-in-law, and some even speculated that he might have poisoned King Edward. Now that Jane had accepted that she had no choice but to be queen, she was not willing to be a puppet. The Lord Treasurer brought her the crown to try on. He informed her that a new crown would be made for Guilford. Jane responded, no, she would make her husband a duke, but not a king. Her refusal undermined Northumberland's plans. Dudley petulantly threatened to leave her and refused to sleep with her. After all, no sex meant no heir. The Privy Council received a message from Princess Mary, asserting her right to the throne and demanding that she be proclaimed queen. She offered them amnesty if they bent the knee, ruin and death if they did not. The council replied that Jane was queen by Edward's authority, and that Mary was illegitimate and supported only by a few lewd base people. Jane had the most powerful and wealthy men in the country, and the might of the Tower of London and its massive arsenal behind her, while Mary had the support of a handful of low-level country gentlemen. Any gambler would have favored Jane heavily for an easy victory. Both Jane and Mary were now confident in their own right to the title. They each sent out dozens of letters to rally support and both signed them the queen. The Privy Council had gravely miscalculated the people's support for Mary. Devout Catholics rallied behind her, but also many commoners and nobles who felt Henry VIII's daughter had been illegally robbed of her birthright. In contrast, Northumberland had to offer twice the usual pay to raise a small army to fight for Jane. He reluctantly left the tower and control of the council and marched out of London with 3,000 soldiers. Meanwhile, Mary had gathered an army of nearly 20,000 ragtag supporters. As it became clear that the common people were on Mary's side, more and more nobles switched their allegiance. And as she marched closer to London, she was greeted by crowds cheering their rightful queen. Jane and the Privy Council were bombarded with news of Mary's increasingly competitive stance. And without Northumberland's strong personality holding them together, lords began skulking away in the night. The treasurer of the mint went missing, and reports came in that he had recruited 10,000 men, not for Jane, but for Mary. Jane knew she was in serious trouble. In desperation, she ordered the gates of the tower locked and guarded to keep her counselors in. She sent increasingly desperate letters to lords around the country, begging them to come to her defense. Meanwhile, Guilford continued to put on airs and dress as a king. He presided over council meetings and dined in state, alone. Finally, Northumberland was in position to engage Mary's forces. He had fewer men, but much stronger artillery. That was until his ships anchored off the coast mutinied and lent their considerable firepower to Mary. When news reached him of just how much the odds were stacked against him, he abandoned the cause and rode away. Back in the tower, Jane's own uncle, the Earl of Arundel, had abandoned her as well he called an emergency meeting of all the privy councillors who had left Jane. Together they signed a letter declaring Mary Queen and making Northumberland the scapegoat for everything that had happened. Arndel rode post-haste to Mary to tell her of the council's change of heart. He begged her forgiveness in the hopes of saving his own neck. The rest of the councilors went to Cheapside and announced that Mary was now queen. The people rejoiced, bonfires were lit, wine was guzzled, and songs were sung throughout London. On July 19th, only Jane's husband and father remained with her in the tower. Lord Grey entered the throne room where his daughter was sitting. He removed the cloth of state from over her head in clear indication that she was no longer Queen there was no anger no tears Jane had never wanted the throne and she said she would give it up as gladly as she had accepted it she asked rather naively can I go home now but rather than her nightmare coming to an end it had only just begun Jane, Dudley, and Henry Gray were escorted from the Royal Apartments to another, much less glamorous part of the tower, the jailhouse. Northumberland, who had so nearly taken control of England, was arrested by Arundel. On his cart ride back to London, he was pelted with stones. On the 3rd of August, Queen Mary, dressed head-to-toe in purple velvet, gold, and jewels, rode triumphantly into London to take control of the tower. Cheering crowds lined the streets. She recognized that Jane had been a political pawn, and she did not wish to execute her cousin. Jane's mother, Frances, pled with her childhood friend, Mary, that her husband and daughter had been led astray by Northumberland. Henry Gray was pardoned and set free. Northumberland, in desperation, converted to Catholicism, but that didn't buy him the Queen's mercy. He was beheaded on August 22nd, in front of a massive, jeering crowd. Jane and Guilford remained locked up in separate parts of the tower, while Mary's advisors pressured her to dispose of her former usurper. On November 13th, Jane was led out of the tower and walked a mile through the streets of London to the Guild Hall where she was put on trial. The court began with a Catholic liturgy. Jane, dressed in black, held a Protestant prayer book. She sat calmly as the charges against her were read. Multiple documents she had signed, Jane the Queen, were used as proof of her treason. She pled guilty and was sentenced to burning at the stake or beheading at the Queen's pleasure. Mary continued to put off signing the death warrant. Jane was family and she might have even pardoned her and allowed her back at court. But the cousins still had one big conflict. Jane would not convert to Catholicism at any cost. Mary's first priority as queen was to undo all the Protestant reforms her father and brother had made. Laws were reversed and mass and the Latin prayer book were reintroduced. Mary, already 37, was desperate to wed and give birth to a Catholic heir, who would keep the country on the path of righteousness. She fell in love with the portrait of her cousin, King Philip II of Spain. Philip was preparing to come to his bride, but he was scared off by a new uprising in Jane's favor. Protestant Sir Thomas Wyatt raised 4,000 men in an attempt to remove Mary from the throne. The rebels were defeated easily by the Crown's forces, arrested and hanged. Henry Grey was discovered to be one of the rebels, thus sealing his daughter's fate. As long as Jane lived, she would be a rallying point for Protestant rebels. So Queen Mary signed her cousin's death warrant. During their seven months of incarceration, Guilford carved his wife's name into the stone wall of his cell. When he was informed that he was to die in five days, he requested to see Jane one last time. But she refused, answering that it would only increase their misery and pain, and that they would shortly meet again in the afterlife. On February 12, 1554, Jane watched from a window as her husband was led to the scaffold, where many gentlemen waited to shake the hand of the erstwhile king consort. When the axe struck him, she exclaimed, O Guilford, Guilford. Next Jane was brought to the scaffold. She was composed and brave even at the sight of the axe and her husband's decapitated corpse. She gave a short speech confessing her guilt in accepting a throne that was not rightfully hers. According to legend, she asked the executioner, will you take it off before I lay me down, referring to her head, to which he answered, no, madam. Once blindfolded, Jane was unable to find the block with her hands, and in a moment of panic she cried out, What shall I do? Where is it? A witness came forward and helped her to find her way. With her head laid down on the block, Jane spoke the last words of Jesus Christ, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the sixteen-year-old, Nine Days Queen, lost her head. Jane and Guilford were buried together, along with other victims of the Tower of London, in the Chapel of St. Peter at Vicula. Her father, Henry Grey, was beheaded eleven days later. Her mother, Frances, was granted a pardon and lived at court with her surviving daughters, Catherine and Mary. Though Jane remains disputed as a Queen of England, Her innocence and bravery in the face of such overwhelming forces and her tragic demise made her a Protestant martyr and have elevated her brief life to the stuff of legends. Queen Mary I went on to a brutal, bloody, tragic, and short reign of her own, which will be the subject of next week's video enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be putting out new episodes each Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos. Thank you for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards.